God told Moses, hey, ex- put exactly what you see. So Moses was looking at realities in heaven and create a copy of them on earth. So Christ entered that distant in heaven, which we saw back in chapter 8, what? right? Um, so everything was pointing to a greater reality, a more perfect tent. The tabernacle on earth was therefore a picture of the realities in heaven. Today the title of my sermon will be found in Hebrews 9, um, and it's the redemption through the blood of Christ. So open your Bible in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read a portion of scripture. We're going to read verses 1 to 14, and then we can pray, and then we can start with the sermon. And it had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washing regulation for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made, by, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Um, He is the mediator of a better covenant, a covenant where our conscience is cleansed, and we can come before you, we can serve you with a clear conscience, Lord. 
as we open your word, we pray, Lord, that you would help your people. Uh, remove me from the picture, Lord. Speak to your people. Uh, help us, Lord. Build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are back in Hebrews 9, um, and we're, gonna, we're covering chapter uh, verses 1 to 14. And in this section, we have three points. Last time I covered the first two points, and today I'm covering the last point. Um, point number one, verses um, 1 to 5, or 2 to 5, uh, the tabernacle. We saw the tabernacle, and uh, <clears throat> it was a foreshadowing of the new covenant worship. Um, Point number two, um, we saw ordinances, and they were coming to an end. And those ordinances, um, they mediated access to God in the Old Covenant. And today, um, from verse 11 to 14, we're going to look at the redemption through the blood of Christ. So the redemption through the blood of Christ. Um, I want to start by by stating a problem. Um, Sometimes, like, when we have, like, uh, doctrinal um, discussion, whether it's, like, end of time or um, someone is talking about a doctrine that is not, you know, uh, the common one. It's not um, um, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It's not uh, regeneration or justification. And people will be like, I don't want to get into doctrine. Just give me Jesus. Just give me the gospel. Um, But the Bible is doctrine from start to the end, right? And sometimes when we read these passages in scriptures, like especially uh, here in Hebrews chapter 9, pointing to the Old Covenant, people might have uh, two uh, reactions, um, and those reactions might be like the bad reaction uh, for us Christians. I kind of borrowed this from John Piper. And the problem I want to underline that most modern Christians have, when they read passages like this, um, they might say, they don't apply to me. Um, so you have the Ark of the Covenant, the lampstand, um, the bread of presence, or the, the, uh, <clears throat> the bread of the present. They don't apply to me. Um, and sometimes they use um, spiritual language. They might say something like, give me the gospel, give me the New Testament. Um, but this really shows a lack of understanding of redemption. I mean, the Bible in itself is like eschatological. It's like God revealing what's going to happen. And throughout history, he's revealing, he's giving us more revelation um, um, so that's, yeah, that's a lack um, in their understanding of redemption. Another group of Christians might say something like, uh, yes, the Bible is spiritual, so there are some spiritual realities in those passages, but since history is always changing, it's not reliable for me. So I want to look at eternal, unchangeable reality, something, uh, truths that are never changing, and as if, like, um, those eternal truths don't have any bearing on history, per se, right? So these two ways Christians should, uh, uh, these are two ways Christians should not relate to the Bible, and especially when we read the Old Testament passages. 
And especially like we read um, the first half of chapter 9, we talk about those are old relics. Like you have urn with manna, you have the staff of um, Aaron that budded. Um, we don't have these things anymore, right? But the proper way to inter- interact with these passages is this. God has a perfect plan of redemption. He is sovereign over time. He is sovereign over the kingdom of men like we read in Daniel, over the sequence of events that happen throughout history. And at specific times of history, this plan is being unfolded. Like my kids, they, they're doing um, they, they, we have we, we use uh, the classical conversation curriculum with them, and they do timeline and they have a song and it 's centered um, in um, it 's toward jesus like and one half of halfway they have like maybe a twelve minute song right and halfway through they have Jesus the Messiah, which is everything is God revealing is everything in history is God revealing his plan of redemption for us. Um, so God has his purposes. He works all things according to his plan and purposes. There are ways he relates to men, to men that are different each period of time. Um, the way he related to people back in the Old Testament time is not how he relates to us today. So, but each time more light is shed on God's self-revelation. Um, Brother Reese was telling the children at one time um, the Bible is full of facts and data and that those are real people, real places, things that happen and we can trust the authenticity of the Bible. Um, and God, throughout history, we see God give his word. We see the acts of God. He gave us his son. God orchestrated all of history so that one day you and I could be saved. God made it possible for me like 12, 14 years ago. Um, I was in Orlando, Florida, and I was having a debate about salvation. I thought I was a Christian. Um, these brothers came um, from Cornerstone Baptist Church, and they were telling us, you're not saved. And I was mad. I'm like, I grew up in church. I'm a Christian. And I, and after that meeting, I think we that meeting um, I think we left at two a.m. Men, they left work, they came and shared the gospel with us for for like seven hours, and then two a.m. we left. Um, I was mad that I went to that church and wanted to confront them. I'm like, hey, you were wrong by telling me I'm not a Christian, but the opposite happened. The Lord changed me and saved me. So the Lord orchestrated everything in our lives so that we can be saved. Um, and, um, and all that um, um, saying that this is old, it's archaic, doesn't apply to me, or maybe this is like eternal truth that don't have any bearing in the here and now, it's just a wrong view. So my duty, so our duty as Christians is to understand the significance and the value of all the things that God has revealed throughout history and how we can apply them to our life. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 to 13 says, um, all these things happened to the people of Israel under Moses for our instruction, and they serve as an example. Um, The author of Hebrews, like he warns against 
um, um, repeating the same mistake they did in the wilderness. They had an unbelieving heart. Um, so that the, 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 the Bible is, is God um, unfolding his plan of redemption. Um, and that's why last time, through my feeble effort, I wanted to kindle your appreciation for uh, the elements or the uh, furnitures we find here in, in chapter 9. And, and this is the way God um, used to relate to the people. God is a loving God. He wanted to, go, uh, to draw near them, and um, he, he provided a way. And the whole um, sacrificial system and the priestly office, all that is way for God, uh, a way for God to relate to the people um, in the Old Covenant. Um, so the Old Covenant ordinances and the priestly services, they are teaching us valuable lesson on how God relates to, to men back in the ancient days. And we need to see their significance for us today. Another thing, I know I've mentioned this so many times, but the book, uh, the book of Hebrews is uh, drawing a distinction, you know, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Testament priestly system, the sacrificial system, and, Christ, and, and Christ's priesthood and um, his sacrifice on the cross. But another thing that the book helps us uh, do is um, to read the Old Testament Christologically. Find Christ in the Old Testament. Um, from Genesis to Revelation, um, the Bible is one story about how God will redeem uh, us um, and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the plan of redemption culminates in Jesus and, and his work on the cross um, so when you read the Old Testament, find Jesus and see how it applies to you today. Um, so before we go into our text, um, there is a poem on the internet. Um, there is a kid, he's an 11-year-old kid, and he recites um, a poem. Uh, you can Google it. It's called Jesus Throughout the Bible. Um, I'm not going to go through it, but I have a sample here. Um, he says, in Genesis, Jesus is the breath of life. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our great high, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he is the builder of the broken down walls of human life, etc., etc., etc. So find Jesus in the Old Testament and see how those seemingly old um, reality apply to us um, and the work of redemption that Jesus um, has accomplished for us. Um, all right, uh, verse 1, if we go to our text, I'm just going to uh, cruise to verse, verses 1 to um, 7. 
Verse 1 talks about an earthly place of holiness and regulation and regulations for worship in the Old Covenant. The author goes to describe uh, these things in, in verse 2. Actually, verse 2 to 5 uh, describe that earthly place of holiness, also called uh, the sanctuary. And verses uh, 6 to 10 describe the Old Covenant ordinances. Uh, we see the first section in the tent, the holy place. You have the lampstand, the table, the bread of presence. Verse 3 to 5, we have the most holy place behind the curtain. And you have um, these elements, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant. Um, um, it says here, a golden, it, it has a golden urn holding the manna and um, the staff of Aaron, the tablet of the covenant. And above it, we have the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. All these were the furnishing of the sanctuary for the priests to do their work. Um, they were mediating for the people. Um, verse 6 um, then talks about that uh, service, um, so to speak. Then in verse 6, the author goes to talk about the rituals, the service, the duties of, uh, of the priest. And, um, and they were ministering in the holy place. Um, God prescribed this for them. But today we don't relate to God this way, right? We don't come here and Brother Raymond doesn't like change like 12 loaves of bread and put the new bread. Um, um, or he doesn't come and like clean the lampstand. There is no like candle here like to replace. No, it's like we relate in a new way with God. So, verse 7. In the most holy place, we see the high priest enter the most holy place with blood to confess and atone for the sin of the people and for his own sin. And um, that happens one time, once a year, and the cycle starts over again the next, the next year. In verse 8, we read this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. So, last time I told you, this is, a, if you're looking at who's the author of the Bible, this is a declaration. The Holy Spirit is the, is the actual author of the Bible. When you read Leviticus, Exodus, it's not Moses you're reading. You're actually reading the Holy Spirit. Um... um so, verse 1 to 7 talks about the Old Covenant. And in, chapter, in verse 8, the author kind of interprets that for us, right? Um, and what the, the, the author is going to give us the problem we're dealing with. The whole problem is like, from the beginning, since the fall, we have one problem. How can we approach God? How can the sinful man enter the presence of a holy God without being consumed by his blazing holiness. The, the Lord was kind. The Lord was loving with the tabernacle. He allowed, he allowed for a few people to come into his presence, the priest in the holy place, and once a year, the high priest um, in the most holy place. 
and everybody else were kept out. If we are still under this economy, you will be kept out. You will be away from God. So with the tabernacle, the people were kept out. Only a select group of people, namely the priest, could enter the holy place, and the high priest, the, holy, the most holy place, once a year. So do you see the significance of the tabernacle um, that it needed to be uh, set aside? We needed something else. We needed a new um, way to relate to God. Because as long as you have this separation between the outer, co- the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place, we are kept far, we are kept away from God. So the author continues this interpretation in, chapter, in verse 9. He says this, this is symbolic for the pre- present age. This arrangement, this tent, the holy place, the most holy place, the veil that separates everything, it's an arrangement. It's a symbolic, it, it is symbolic for the present age. What present age? Simply put, it's the, it's the time where the author was writing the book, right? Even though God had provided a way for the people to commune with him through offerings and sacrifices, through the Aaronic priesthood and the rituals, showing that he cares for the people, showing that he, is, he has a fatherly and a steadfast love for them. This present age was characterized by distance and standoffishness. The people had to have an intermediary between them and God. Someone would go to God on their behalf, but they were kept outside. And it was valid up to the point of the writing of the book of Hebrews. People were kept at, at a distance. But Christ had already come. So the author is looking at a reality that was still happening in the temple. Something that was still happening in the temple. Like I said in the beginning, this is relevant for us. Uh, why? Because that helps us appreciate more the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Ephesians 2, I'm going to read it later on. Like we, even the Gentiles, they were allowed to come in proximity to the temple, but they were, there was a wall. They could not enter the temple. There was a wall, and they were outside of the wall. Um, in Ephesians, it says the wall of separation was uh, brought down. Um, that gives us more appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Let's continue reading in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The conscience of the worshiper could not be perfected through sacrifices. The problem of you and me is this. We have a guilty conscience before God. No amount of blood, of goats, of bulls can clear a guilty conscience. We're going to see that in more detail later. Um, Verse 10, they deal only, 
no, uh, but deal only with food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So all these, they were for the body, not for your conscience. Your inner man was still guilty before God. But at the end, there is the until a time of reformation. He mentioned, so there are two times here. There is the present age, and there is the time of reformation. So this time of reformation is not talking about the 16, 16th century, right? Not, it's not talking about Luther. It's talking about a new system, um, a new order of things. God is doing something new. A better way in which men can relate to God. You see, the present age referred to in verse 9 alludes to the worship that was still happening in the temple, which may have continued a little bit after Jesus ascended to heaven. But he's saying the sacrificial system, the priesthood, uh, the tabernacle, and all these uh, furnishing, they don't bring intimacy with God. They don't clean your conscience. Therefore, they have a time where they're going to be expired, a time of reformation. And you know when that happened? Let's continue, to, let's, continue, let's continue reading. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared, the present age, characterized by distance, by blood and sacrifice and, and, and priesthood, it had a date of expiration. And that happened when Christ appeared. When Christ came in the flesh, he ushered a new way to relate to God. He changed everything, providing a, another way to enter into intimacy with God. In the Old Testament, only the priest and the high priest can enter intimacy with God. They were in the very presence of God in the tabernacle. But now, people, they have prayer closet. The Lord told the uh, woman at the well, it's not on this mountain or in Jerusalem people worship God. God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We have a new way to worship God. When Christ came, so Jesus, what he did, he ends the priesthood. He ends the sacrifices. He established a new order. That present age that was characterized by um, distance, um, we were far off, is done away with. Now Jesus gives us access to the throne of God. And the whole book is about that. It's about the transition from the old to the new, from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the old way of relating with God to the new way of relating with him. So this time of reformation, verse 11 tells us, it, um, when he came when Christ came. All right, before we continue reading uh, verse um, 11, let's flip back a little bit to um, our page to chapter 8 and the last verse. 
verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. In speaking of the new covenant, who is speaking here? That's a reference to the um, new covenant found in Jeremiah 31, 31. God is speaking. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will give them a new heart. I will write my law on their heart. God is the one speaking. He's speaking of the new covenant. So he makes the first one obsolete. The first one is the Mosaic covenant, the one that happened at Mount Sinai. The old covenant became obsolete. The verse continues to say, it became obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and going old is ready to vanish away. Um, So the tense of the verse is like a a, a progressive tense, right? It's something that is happening progressively until it happens. So sometimes when God declares something, um, um, how can I explain that? So there are different economies. Um, God says, okay, I'm going to do away with the old covenant. It doesn't happen overnight. Like you, you have it today and boom, tomorrow it's, it's gone. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate that for you. You remember in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, um, if I read it real quick for you. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall, know, shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Men and women, back in, before the flood, they were living 900 years, right? But the Lord said, Now their life will be 120 years. A big chunk is removed. But we saw after the flood... Noah lived 350 years, give him a total of 950 years of his life. We saw Abraham, a few generations down the line, he still lived 175 years. Moses, he wrote uh, Psalm 90, which we saw last week with Brother uh, Chris Howland. He says, the span of life is 70 and by way of strength, 80. But Moses, he lived 120 years. But eventually now we live on average 70 and 80 years, right? So when the Lord declares something um, in different economy, he doesn't just cut it off right away. He gives it time to like progress into um, one into the next, one progress into the next. So, God says, yeah, men should live 120 years. Men did not drop dead after God declares dead. There was a process. There was a transition. Um, so, same thing with the old covenant and the new covenant. When Christ came into the world as the only high priest, he offered his life as the only sacrifice for sin. He enters into the holy of holies in heaven once and for all, procuring an eternal redemption for us. That, that is the time the new covenant 
was inaugurated. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant started when Christ was 33. But Christ went to heaven. The gospel needed to go out. He, he commissioned his disciples, go therefore and preach the gospel to all the nation, starting in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and to all the ends of the earth. So the gospel didn't spread enough. Um, but the Lord could not have the sacrificial system still standing and Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, you cannot have those two providing a way to relate to God at the same time. God says, I'm going to do away with this, the old one. And what happened in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed. I like the number 70 because, you know, if you know my eschatology, I, love num- I like numbers. 77 decades. So it's like the Lord, the number seven is the long- number of the Lord, the number of perfection. So I like it happened in 7080. So the Lord, at this is the fullness of time, I allow for this to stand. Boom. The temple destroyed. My kids, they sing that in the uh, timeline. Temple destroyed in um, 7080. Um, why? We don't need it anymore. God is doing away with the old covenant, and now we have the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So the priesthood ended, the sacrificial system ended. Now, there is only one way man can relate to God is through Jesus Christ. You know, the Jews, they had to reinterpret the whole Old Testament um, because of that. They can no longer offer sacrifices. They can, they can no longer obey the, uh, the Torah. So they have to come up with clever ideas to say, oh, this means this, this means that. I heard like um, uh, Isaiah 55 is one of the for, it's for, it's a forbidden passage for the Jews, for some of the Jews, which depicts um, Christ and his suffering on the cross. Yeah, they had to come up with um, clever um, reinterpretation of all these things in the New Testament. All right, let's get to verses 11 to 14. Um, the last thing I want to do before I read the, the last thing I want to say before I go to the verse, um, chapter 9 and chapter 10 in Hebrews, they, have, they are a summary of everything that was said before. We talk about um, angels, we talk about uh, Moses, um, the high priest and everything. So we're getting into the summary of everything that was said before. Okay, go back to um, verse 11. But when Christ appeared, which marks the time, of, um, the, the time of Reformation, when he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
This is glorious. The old covenant, yet they have the regulations, yet they have a place of worship. But when Christ came, all this is it's no longer valuable in a sense that we don't need this to worship God. We don't need this to enter the presence of God. We, because why? They were pointing to a greater reality. There were types and shadows of the greater things. He says, Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. They were pointing to the things to come. But when Christ came, those things came with him. What are these things? Salvation, fellowship with God, nearness with God. You don't have to stay far off. You can draw near him. So when Christ came, he is the high priest of the good things that have come. The new covenant brings salvation Redemption is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And he says he offers his own blood. He didn't bring the blood of goats. He didn't bring the blood of bulls. Um, We don't need a high priest other than Jesus Christ. The second half of verse 11 says... um, through the greater and more perfect tent, comparing the earthly tent we saw in verse 1. And he says, this tent is not made by hands that is not of this creation. God told Moses, hey, put exactly what you see. So Moses was looking at realities in heaven and create a copy of them on earth. So, Christ entered that distant in heaven, which we saw back in chapter 8, what, right? Um, so everything was pointing to a greater reality, a more perfect tent. The tabernacle on earth was therefore a picture of the realities in heaven. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. Every year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest had to come and confess his sin and the sin of the people. But the moment he goes out, he has a guilty conscience that's like, you need to ask for forgiveness again, but you have to wait another year. You have to wait another year for the priest to go into the most holy place and offer sacrifices. So verse 12 is putting emphasis on the completeness and the eternality of Christ's sacrifice as opposed to the uh, repetitiveness of the sacrifices of the Levites. They had to offer sacrifice continually, but Christ only offered up himself once for all, for you and for me, to redeem us from our sins. For those who believe in him, for those who obey him. So our confidence is grounded in Christ, 
in this eternal security we have in his sacrifice, this, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. That's why the book is like, don't throw away your profession. You are, you are secure in Christ. Persevere until the end. Don't give up. So he's exhorting them to persevere until the end, to not abandon Christ, because once you, re- you are redeemed, you cannot be lost. That's the security of salvation. Christ says, you are in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand. You are in the hand of my Father. No one can take you out of the hand of my Father. Who is greater than the Father? No one. Not even yourself. If you are his child, if you go on sinning, he will discipline you and bring you back. We're going to see that in Hebrews 12. But even yourself, you cannot remove you cannot mess this plan up. You cannot. Once you are saved, you are secure in Christ. If he, Colossians 3 says, you are seated in the heavenly places with him. So this verse, verse 12, let's read it again. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. This verse is a quick summary of the mission of Christ into fulfilling or accomplishing the, rede- the plan of redemption that God had decreed before the foundation of the world. All right, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify, purify our conscience from dead works and serve the living God. To serve the living God. To approach God in the old covenant, it means you need to be ritually clean. That's why they had to offer the sacrifices. And we saw that they were for the flesh. You have to offer a a bull, a goat, turtle dove. Why? Because you need to be ritually clean. Even the high priest needed to do that before Aaron, for the first time, before he could enter the tent of meeting, they had to kill a bull for them, for him and his sons. So those ceremonies, um, they render you clean externally, outwardly. And the Lord accepted you this way. But your sin, they were still inward. What can take away those sins? We sing it, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So these sacrifices could not cleanse the inner person. They could not cleanse the conscience. But Christ, on the other hand, is totally different. 
the priest, he had to offer sacrifices before he enters the holy place. Jesus didn't have to do that. Why? Because he was pure. He's the son of God. He was without sin, without blemish. He didn't need external washing. He had the full spirit of God. The fullness of the Godhead dwell him in him bodily. So he did not need purification. He didn't, he didn't need goats or bulls or turtle dove. Even though he had to follow those rituals when Mary gave birth to him. Remember, like, on the eighth day he was circumcised. And after 45 days he had to go to the temple. But it's because he had to obey the law. But it's not for him to be pure. He's pure. He's, he's the perfect son of God. He had no sin. He kept the law perfectly. So when he offered up himself, it was not through ritual or gifts or sacrifices, but he offered himself, like the book of Hebrews says, to an eternal spirit, the spirit of God, which now lives in you. That's why now your conscience can be clear. The inner man can be clean. Jesus had the fullness of the Holy Spirit in him, and that spirit now lives in us. If we belong to God, we have his spirit, Romans 8 says. If you don't have the spirit of God, you do not belong to him. This cleansing happened through the miracle of regeneration, when God gives you a new heart and declares you, you are born again. So Jesus cleans our inner man, cleans our conscience, and only Christianity can offer this. All the religion in the world, they, they provide solutions to make you feel better. But I guarantee you, the guy that committed murder, when he goes to bed at night, his conscience is like beating on him. You did this, and there is no remedy for that. People try to sear their conscience, but he comes back. That sin, it comes back. It haunts you. The world cannot offer that. Even us, before we came to Christ, the Bible says our best deed, our best work, it was like what? Filthy rags, dirty garments. Sometimes you go to evangelism and we're like, hey, how can you be right with God? People say, yeah, I start doing right. I start doing good things, help people. No, your best work, even if you cure cancer, if you, I don't know, do, send people to Mars, You have a conscience problem. Your best work, they cannot take away your conscience problem. Jesus, his sacrifice, his blood on the cross, that's what takes away our sin. That's what gave us a pure conscience. <clears throat> Verse 14 reads, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Anyone under the old covenant who recognized the pervasiveness <clears throat> sorry, of sin would know that 
I would need another sacrifice the moment the day of atonement is over. So all the sacrifices, everything in the Old Covenant, they amount to nothing, zero, zilch. They were all pointing to Jesus Christ. So when we read passages like this, we have to see Jesus Christ and have a much more appreciation for the salvation he bought for us on the cross in his blood. Now when someone um, is regenerated, all these efforts, all these, uh, the, these nice things we try to do, which are filthy rags, um, now God sees you and is pleased with you because the righteousness of Christ is imputed in you. So only the atoning work of Christ can cleanse our conscience. The weight of sin is lifted. We are no longer condemned, but we are free in God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that cleans our conscience from dead works. We saw last time that the dead works kind of refer to the sacrifices, the bulls and the goats, but really we only needed that one sacrifice that can take away our sin and cleanse our conscience. Today, if you're not a Christian, that's good news for you. That, that's good news. Children, that's good news. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He can cleanse our conscience. If you're a Christian, you have, I don't know, you backslide, you fall. Christ's blood covers our past, present, and future sins. So come to him, repent, and trust in him. Amen. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have redemption we can serve you with a clean conscience. All these rituals in the, in the Old Testament were pointing to you. They were pointing to you, O oh Jesus. Pointing to that ultimate sacrifice that would, you would offer on the cross for us. So help us today to take a hold of this truth and trust in you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.